0: well as you see by the screen in front of you there are the readings today are in two parts uh, first part is romans 8 uh, 1 to 4 which you will find on page 1132 of your pew bibles in the seat in front of you second reading is from galatians 3 commencing at uh, verse 23 and then going through until uh, galatians 4 right through to verse 7 And that's on page 1169 in your church Bibles. So starting with uh, Romans 8, uh, which is entitled, Life Through the Spirit. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do Commencing at verse 23, and this is entitled, "'Children of God, before the coming of this faith "'we were held in custody under the law, "'locked up until a faith that was to come would be revealed. "'So the law was our guardian until Christ came "'that we might be justified by faith. "'Now that this faith has come, we were no longer under a guardian.'" So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptised into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Therefore, sorry, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. The heir is subject to the guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were underage, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but God's child, and since you are his child, God has made you also an heir.
1: Friends, if I could invite you to open your Bibles um, uh, to Romans 8 again, it's found on page 1132, that'd be excellent. You know, no world religion offers assurance of salvation in the way that biblical Christianity does, which is why it's so tragic when so many born-again believers see eternity as something that is uncertain. Uh, Here are some quotes from members of my own congregation who I know love Jesus, uh, they're different people. One said, I'm 30, I grew up in a Christian home and I often wonder, is it my faith or is it my parents' faith? I know some of you are struggling with that. Another said, I read that there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus, but I feel rejected by God. Still another said, I live with constant pain and I find it hard to experience God's saving love. Still another said, I, I live with the constant fear of deceiving myself that I am really a child of God. And another said, how many times will God forgive my repeated sin? I fear there must be a limit. Ring any bells? Absolutely. You may even tell others you're absolutely sure of your salvation, but deep down your joy, your Christian life has been crippled because of haunting doubts, gnawing guilt that has really stolen your joy. Friends, can I say that Romans 8 wants to say one key truth to you, that God not only wants to save his people, he wants them to know they are saved. He not only wants to forgive his people, he wants them to know they are forgiven. Romans chapter 8 begins with, essentially, the whole chapter wants to drown you in a sea of certainty. It begins with this opening statement, Romans 8, one. Take a look at it. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You think that was good? By the time you get to the end, in verse 39, it says, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. Zip. But the reality is life is lived now. Sure, I'm a forgiven saint with the glory yet still to come. And between these two certainties are two hard realities. There is a reality that we all know of, the sinful nature that keeps dragging us down into the dirt and the devil's playground. And then there is suffering in its many forms. And we heard of one tragic story this very day where that suffering can drive you into dark corners where you start to doubt that God loves you and is for you. And so as you journey, as you're going to journey through the month of January, through Romans 8, you will see how God's Son, God's Spirit and God's sovereignty is wanting to speak to that issue and and affirm the fact that you are a child of God in the face of sin and suffering. And I tell you why this is important, because since we Christians who live in the 21st century, we live approximately 30 years longer than Christians lived 100 years ago. We know that from... Um, the Australian Bureau of Statistics. So we've got an extra 30 years to deal with our sin, an extra 30 years to deal with suffering. So we've got to get this right. And that's why I think Romans 8 is the textbook discipleship chapter. And that's not just to promote my book. I'm promoting Romans 8. But I'm going to, take, I'm going to start at an unusual place. And it's actually in verse 3 because that will set the context for us. So let me read to you Romans 8 verse 3. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. So Romans 8 really ends a discussion on the law in Romans 7. And when you, when you reflect on the law, what do we mean by that? We're, we're essentially meaning the old covenant law summarized in the Ten Commandments, summarized further still in those two great commandments that Jesus said. You're to love God with all your heart and mind and soul and strength. You're to love your neighbour as yourself. And what does God have to say about this law? Well, what he has to say in Romans 7 is quite surprising. At one reading, it almost looks like the law of God God functions like a double agent. You're not sure whose side it's on. I don't know if you saw that fairly mediocre film called Salt, where Angelina Jolie, it's unclear whether she's a spy working for the Americans or the Russians. And it's unclear whether the law is on God's side or against God because on the one hand, the law is clearly given by God. No problem. Chapter 7, verse 12. So then the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous and good. It ref- it's good because it reflects the very nature of God's character. It defines for us what sin is and isn't. In uh, Romans 7, verse seventy, Paul says, I would not have known what sin was had it not been for the law. So the law is a good thing. It draws a line in the sand, tells you what pleases God, what grieves God. We need it. Every, in fact, every relationship has its boundary markers. I remember one young Christian woman a couple, of, a year or two ago, she'd just come to faith. She was in a discipleship class for young Christians, and she said, just dawn on her, so what you're saying is, is porn wrong? It's lovely. It tells you how post-Christian we're getting. That is going to be a common question, because she'd never heard the law of Christ. But, but knowing the law, once you knew that, that, it wasn't going to be the law that's going to make her want to keep it. Something else will need to do that. Because that's not the function of the law. What's surprising is that, and this is the real shock in Romans 7, I think, is that sin, and I don't mean sins, sin, the power of sin in our sinful nature, sin uses the good law takes advantage of it to the point that it actually promotes even more sin. I know it's a blunt illustration, but it's like a pedophile taking advantage of a child for sex. Look at verse 8, chapter 7, verse 8. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, the good commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting, for apart from the law, sin was dead. Got Got the can there for me? Yeah, just throw it up. Yeah, no problem. Woo-hoo. Right. Sin does to law what shaking this can does to this can of Coke. And by the way, I was trying to find a can of Coke in your cafeteria. Couldn't find any. Well done. You're a very healthy church. <laughs> but you know, the more you shake it, the more effervescence is going to come. And, and I kind of like that's exactly what Romans 7 is trying to teach about. When the law meets sinful nature, this is what happens. More sin is produced. On its own, the law of God is kind of like a nagging spouse, a demanding boss, a graceless pastor, a controlling parent who micromanages every detail of their child's life. Do this, don't do that. And the most frustrating thing thing about a nagger is that they're right most of the time. I should pick up my clothes. I do need to lose an extra 10 kilos. Um, I should visit my mother-in-law more often. Sin does to law what fertiliser does to my lawn. It makes it grow. The law just doesn't motivate. Sorry, the law just doesn't motivate. And I I tried the Romans 7 principle on my wife one day. She was coming into the house. She was loaded with um, uh, shopping bags. And I said, Sandy, whatever you do, do not read page 8 of the Blacktown Star. It's a local paper. She immediately dropped the bags, went straight to the Black Down Star, went to Page and said, Now, what don't you want me to look at? It's how kind of reverse psychology works. It particularly works for kids. If you want to get them to do something, you tell them to do the opposite. Uh, There was a a study, the kind of classic study on reverse psychology, where psychologists were observing a group of kids playing and they noticed the toys they played with and a particular toy that they weren't interested in. Then they broke the group into two and then told one group not to play with that particular toy that no one wanted to play with. Well, surprise, surprise, that was the toy everyone wanted to play with in that group but not in the other. Why? Because we're somehow hardwired to do the very opposite to what we're told. I know, the law of God has many good aspects to it in God's plan, many roles. But saving people is not one of them and motivating people is not one of them either. That's why it's called in verse 2, the law of sin and death. And notice again how, how the Bible's worldview is so different to religion. Religion says if only you want it enough, believe it in enough, know enough, meditate enough, you can achieve it, whatever the goal is, in this, whatever the spirituality is. The power lies within you. Christianity says, actually, that's not true. You can't do it. In fact, Paul will say in Romans 7, we do what we don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. But of course, the problem's not the law. The problem's me, you, us, our sinful nature. Look at Romans 8.3 again. For what the law was powerless to do, why? Because it was weakened by the flesh. Now, by the flesh, we don't mean sort of love-handled stuff flesh. We're talking about a nature that we've inherited from Adam. We're all children of Adam, a nature that is born bent, a nature that Martin Luther said is curved in on itself, a nature that instinctively left to itself wants to resist God's claim on our life. And I think that's probably why that parable of the scorpion and the frog, if you know it, it has popped up in six different movies and TV shows that I've seen already, because I think it speaks to a reality that every human identifies with. If you don't know what it is, let me... Briefly tell you, it's not a true story, by the way. The the scorpion says to the frog, "Any chance of giving me a piggyback across the lake?" Frog says to the scorpion, "No way. You'll bite me and I'll be dead." Scorpion says, "No, I won't. Think about it. If I bite you, you'll die and I'll drown. It's to my advantage to keep you alive." Frog thinks, "Yeah, that's true. Okay, get on board. Hop, hop, hop. Halfway along the, along the lake, frog gets a feels this bite on its neck by the scorpion. Turns around and just before it dies, says. What did you do that for? Scorpion says, couldn't help myself. It's in my nature. What are you going to do? Now, the scorpion, there was something irresistible for the scorpion to bite the frog. And there is something irresistible about humanity that wants to sin. Now, I told you it wasn't a true story, but the fa- I'm just curious as to why the fable is so regularly used in movies and TV shows. Because it's, it's, it's betraying and understanding of what humans are like. The weakness of humanity. It explains the core weakness of humanity. It's the gravity that keeps pulling humanity down to the ground. Now, the good news is, is what the law couldn't do because it was weakened by a sinful nature. That's not where I finish it finishes. God did by sending his son. Look at Romans 8, verse 3 again. It's, we're just chewing over these verses slowly so we get a, They're so packed with truths that you want to enjoy them. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, we've seen that, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering, and so he condemned sin in the flesh. All right, so. Our mindset's now, okay, the law couldn't do it and we couldn't do it. Now the solution's going to come from the outside, not from the inside. It's not going to come by trying a little bit harder. Uh, It's not going to come by changing our environment. Remember, where did the first sin happen? Paradise. Changing your environment. If I change my suburb, if I change my school, if I change my family, I end up as a middle class sinner. That's the only difference. Educated devil, you only get a smart devil, right? So what the law couldn't do, God did by sending his own son. That's worth pondering. I know that's, we've, it's very familiar terrain for us Christians, but think about it. God does his own dirty work. That child in the manger that we celebrate on December the 25th, that was God's son and God sent. To the question that Paul raises at the end of Romans 7, who will rescue me from this body of death? God says, I will rescue you and I will do that in the form of my dear son. And so begins this military-style operation where God sends his son behind enemy lines to rescue us, who are essentially prisoners of sin. And and Jesus comes fully prepared. But you may not quite see it. In verse 3b, what's a B? It's halfway through the verse. God did what the law couldn't do. God did by sending his own son in the likeness of, Of sinful flesh to be a sinner. It's an interesting phrase. It walks a narrow line. Either side, there's a heresy. Uh, Jesus came as a human, fully human, yes, but he did not come as a sinful human. That is to say, he was obedient. You know, sin, you see, has to be attacked from two angles for us to be set free. On the positive side, there needed to be someone who was going to finally, perfectly keep the law of God. Uh, that wasn't you and that wasn't me, but finally someone finally turned up and his name was Jesus who matched God's law with perfect obedience. The covenant finally was kept by someone. It's an interesting concept to know that Jesus was sinless. When I was trying to explain it to my kids, I would say what that means, kids, is is that Jesus never had to say sorry to mum and dad. Really? Yep. And if he ever was sent to his room, it was never his fault. It was always Joe and Mary's fault. They obviously... We're in a mood and he paid the price. Really? He never did anything wrong. That's right. Jesus walked this whole life from womb to tomb, responding to God's love with perfect love. He did it. From the negative side, though, someone needed to come along and take full responsibility for all the times we did fail and break God's law and break his heart. And that someone, of course, was Jesus. In fact, the two are necessary. For to be the perfect sacrifice... To have been that perfect sin offering, Jesus needed to have been that sinless saviour. Otherwise, he would have had to die for himself. So the law says the wages of sin is death. Jesus comes along and says, yes, but with me, uh, the wages of your sin is my death at the cross. So the logic now gets broken, or rather turned on its head. Jesus says, you sin, but I die. I die, you get to live. And that's why it is sin that's condemned at the cross and not you and me. Look at the, verse, the last phrase in verse 3 of Romans 8. And so he condemned us? No. So he condemned sin in the flesh. Oh, that's such a beautiful thing. That at the cross, sin was punished instead of me. One well-trained, uh, one well-taught four-year-old boy uh, that I heard about, I was about to be disciplined by his mum. Well, he knew the Bible and he decided to stand his ground. And he said, Mum, you can't punish me. Jesus has taken the punishment for my sins. All of it. Now, I, now you've got to stop and respect that. I, I mean, I think that's applied theology. But now if his mum had heard her wits about it, she would have said, that's right, son. That's why you're being sent to your room and not into hell. Now get in there. And that 's why this chapter begins with that glorious statement, so you 've got to kind of work your way to that verse Romans eight: one therefore there is now how much uh, um, sorry, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that 's why we 're no longer prisoners of sin. the penalty has been paid we 've been set free. but importantly, can I say, especially in Romans eight uh, The distinguishing feature of Romans 8 is that it wants to connect the death of Jesus not just with forgiveness, but actually with a newfound freedom to do the very thing that God had always wanted us to do, which is to love God and love others. Look at verse 4. The purpose for why Jesus was that sin offering, the purpose for the cross, is in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. God sent his son to be a sin offering, to pay that penalty, to assume responsibility, so that in the end, we will produce the fruit of the Spirit, not the works of the flesh. Once you get, now if you're not a Christian here today, so glad you're here with us, but once you hook up with Jesus and unite with him, the promise, the, he not only wants to save you, he wants you to know that you're saved and live with the moment-by-moment with the moment experience That there is no condemnation. And once you know that, all of a sudden, newfound desires start to pop up that you never had before. All of a sudden, you are now free to do what technically is called here to fulfil the righteous requirements of the law. Well, if you zip over to Romans 13, 9, the righteous requirements of the law is to love your neighbour. Oh, that's what God always wanted from the first place. Now I'm able to do it. How? Because of what Jesus did for me. I no longer live under condemnation. I'm finally free. Now, of course, we need to hear about the ministry of the Spirit, but that's for next week, okay? So this is only grounded in the reality that God will send his Spirit as well. But I want to just focus in on these four verses, and in particular, focus in on the power of Christ's love at the cross that not only forgives us perfectly, but sets us free to obey. Um, I remember a brand-new Christian who joined us in the early days of MBM. Matt was his name. He was uh, maybe 20, 21, um, and he uh, came with a real servant's heart. He would tell me how his mum would be on his back about you know, getting rid of that torn T-shirt that he loved to live in, finally putting on some shoes when he goes out, uh, maybe drop a couple of kilos, get a haircut. Anyway, mum would be on him, and no change, zip, <laughs> lots of law, no change. <laughs> and then I hadn't seen Matt for a couple of weeks, and then he sort of walks into church, whoa-ho, whoa Matt, what happened? Haircut, he dropped five kilos, nice set of duds, and shoes. I'd never seen him in shoes before. I mean footwear. I mean thongs even. That was that was progress. It was he just walked barefoot. And you don't need to be Einstein to know what happened. What happened? Anyone want to guess? Yeah, it was a girl, I <laughs> think you're right. He you fell in love. Technically, let's be more precise than that. He felt accepted by a significant other. He experienced the approval of someone he loved. He had tasted of the love of another. And it liberated him. (laughs) It wasn't because a mum said. She didn't even have to say it. All of a sudden, transformation started to take place. Now for us, As followers of Jesus, the cross of Christ is where we find the most profound approval of all from the only opinion that counts. Most of us grew up with words that were said that still leave scars in our psyche. Where we spend our days, you know, the eight o'clock. I know there are 80-year-olds, 90-year-olds who are still trying to prove their parents wrong. trying to prove that teacher wrong, still trying to prove your sibling wrong, your parents wrong. We live in a culture that's so pharisaic and it's legalism that's constantly telling you, you are not good enough, you are not pretty enough, you are not funny enough, you are not smart enough, you are not wealthy enough. And this weight of condemnation, and you can't bear fruit unless that is dealt with. And I I think John Piper nailed it. He's a famous American Christian preacher. He said, you can't fight a sin unless you know it's already forgiven. You can't do battle with sin unless you know it's already forgiven and paid for. What a profound... Look, if you remember nothing else, remember that quote. You can only only obey God once you live under, under... under the knowledge that he is not your judge but your dad. So, where is it that you're constantly, what's your Achilles heel? Every Christian's, we've got to, you know, where I struggle may be different from where you struggle, but the reality is we struggle. And there are those recurring areas that constantly bring us down. And wherever that is for you, and I know there's more than one, but what I'm saying is take this truth that there is no condemnation. And let it stare into the face of those many failures that you and I have as we look back on a life lived where there's one sin after another that trail behind us. And speak it to yourself. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. I love saying to the: we have some guys in church who have been in jail. You know, they've they've done serious time, and rightly so, because they've done some serious crime. And they've served their sentences, they've come to know Christ. And uh, when they come, I make a point of saying, firstly... There is nothing Jesus can't forgive. But the second thing I do is I kind of physically grab them by the shoulders and I look them in the eye and say, you've got to understand there is absolutely no difference between you and me. That there is no condemnation for we who put our trust in Christ. And then I say to them, you and me, we are as righteous as Christ himself. That's what it means when Paul says, There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Can you feel the approval? It's like Paul is trying to grab everyone by the shoulder and say, can you, do you have a sense if you're a follower of Christ and if you decide today to become one, this is what's on offer. Divine approval. Jesus is saying, with me, there is no condemnation. You can't make God angry anymore. It's gone. And that's why what this does, it, liberate, it liberates you from having to pretend. Pretend in a way that the world has to still pretend because they're trying to justify themselves, you see. That we can share our struggles and confess our sins not only to God, but actually to each other. That's healthy. In fact, that's commanded. And why it's so important is that because we, I think, need to hear from others that there's no condemnation when we failed in whatever area. That's why we come to church. That's why we meet in small groups. I encourage you to do that because who else is going to tell you this? And can I say that's why we can experience the consequences of our failures here on earth because we know that there are no consequences on the Day of Judgment. You know this year, I, uh, last two years we've had a very difficult pastoral issue that I don't think I've handled very well and it impacted a number of people in the church and I got round to finally understanding that and sitting with various groups of people over the course of what would be seven hours. Three hours in one, four hours in another. And I invited them to share with me the impact of the direction that I had taken that, in the end, I realised was the wrong direction. Will you try sitting and listening to seven hours of people telling you, not in a rude way, but how your decision had wounded them profoundly? And as they were talking, I just kept thinking, well, this is the discipline of the Lord and it's not pleasant. But I kept thinking, I'm so glad that there's no condemnation for Ray Gilear. It liberates you to live, to face the consequences because you know the big consequence is gone. I don't have to worry about a Christless eternity. Brothers and sisters, God not only wants to save you, he wants you to know you are saved and it sets you free. So let's pause for a moment. Perhaps bow your head. Because in each of us, we're in a different story. We've each got a different... Some of us have, kind of, have never heard this before. It's brand new. What? You mean? In spite of everything I've done, God can give me a clean slate now and forevermore? Yes. But only if you put your trust in Jesus. If that's you, I want to invite you to pray this prayer. But for others, you know you trust Jesus, but there are recurring sins that keep hijacking your assurance. And because you don't grasp your assurance, you know you dive back into the sin because you can't live with the guilt. And so you need to pray that God will actually grant you the God-given right that he wants you to have, and that is to know that you're saved. And still for others, that the reason why God assures us is A, for God's glory, and secondly, so that we can be set free to love him and love others. So in this prayer, I'm going to kind of do all three. I'm going to invite you now just to pause for a moment. Firstly, think about which one are you in those three scenarios? Not a Christian? A Christian who doesn't have assurance? A Christian who has assurance, but hasn't yet worked out that this is what liberates us to love God and love others? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I sin, but you died. You died so that I can live. I believe that all my sins, past, present, future, have already been punished in your body at the cross. Thank you that they'll never ever be punished in my body on judgment day and thereafter thank you thank you, thank you and help us to know your acceptance help us to experience this God given approval that there is absolutely no condemnation And finally, Lord, let it set us free to be what you have called us to be. A people who love you with all our heart and to love others. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.